once again, you may be seated this morning. If you have a Bible with you, we are going to continue in our verse-by-verse study in Mark's Gospel, the second book of the New Testament, the second Gospel narrative that we have recorded, Matthew, Mark, chapter 2. We'll start reading at verse 23. We covered the first 22 verses last week, and so we will pick it up at verse 23, move into chapter 3 of Mark. If you need a Bible, just raise your hand. We'll slip you a Bible wherever you're at. Pastor Jim will make sure you get one. We want you to read the text with us, be able to read it uh, with us and uh, as we study God's Word together. So once again, if you will turn to Mark's Gospel, chapter 2, we'll start reading at verse 23 as we began last week to look at chapter 2, and you recall, if you were here, that when we opened up the chapter, chapter 2, that we saw that this confrontation that the Pharisees have with Jesus begins, and and we saw that, um, that they began to come against Jesus' ministry as he's ministering there in the Galilee region. And as we go through Mark's gospel, one of the things that we need to keep in mind is that it was the religious leaders that have a problem with Jesus, and we're going to see that that's going to escalate as we continue through our text here this morning. But it was the common people that loved to be around Jesus. Matter of fact, we know in Mark's chapter 12 that as Jesus is ministering to the multitudes, that it reads that the common people heard him gladly. And the reason that I believe is because Jesus spoke about the kingdom. He spoke about relationship and closeness with God. He spoke about the love of the Father. And he said, as we saw in this chapter last week, that it is not a time to be fasting, Pharisees, because the bridegroom is with you. It's a time of joy. It's a time of celebration. It's a time of rejoicing. And the religious leaders were absolutely appalled and scandalized that Jesus would have dinner with tax collectors and sinners. And how can he do that? They were protesting to Jesus' disciples. Doesn't he know who it is that he's eating with, those sinners, tax collectors? And Jesus once again clarified his mission as he said, I did not come to call the righteous, but sinners into repentance. He spoke with such simplicity and he spoke with grace and with truth. And so we're going to see also, as it's already been mentioned, that he spoke also with great authority. So Jesus was bringing a refreshing change to the people and to a religious system in the land that had become so rigid and so hard and so burdensome. So Jesus talking about relationship, not just about religion. And so we're going to see, as I mentioned to you, that this challenge, this confrontation, that this sect of the religious leaders, the Pharisees, which would then be joined in as the scribes would ally themselves with the Pharisees and the Herodians, is going to increase as we continue on. So let's pick up our text, as in verse 23 we do read, Now it happened that he, that is Jesus, went through the grain fields on the Sabbath, and as they went, his disciples began to pluck the heads of grain. And the Pharisees said to him, Look, why do they do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And so let's pray before we continue in our study. Father, we just want to take this time, and Lord, as uh, once again we open up your word, and Lord, we know that you desire to speak to us, and for us to be refreshed and renewed in our relationship to just uh, grow with you, Lord, as we just see your goodness and your faithfulness and how you have compassion for us. And Lord, how you speak. 
those words of eternal life to us. And so may our ears be open and our hearts soft before you this morning. I, I just pray that we would be settled in, that uh, we be free from distractions, and Lord, be blessed as we study your word this morning. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. So when the disciples were on a Sabbath day in the fields in they're plucking the heads of grain, and all of a sudden, the Pharisees are watching them. It's on the Sabbath day, and, and they begin to protest. They protest to Jesus and saying that what you are doing, it's not lawful for you to do this. Now, they were referring to the disciples doing it on the Sabbath day, because 1,500 years previous to this, when Moses received the law of God, we know that provision was made in the law that if you were hungry, if you were poor, if you did not have provision of food, that what you could do when you were in Israel is you could go into the corners of the field and you can pluck the heads of grain. Now, we being in Greeley and in Weld County, it's an agricultural area, and we, if we saw somebody, stop their car and go and start picking, you know, corn out of the field in the summertime or heads of you know grain in the wheat fields we would say that's not right you shouldn't be doing that but it was perfectly legal in israel two thousand years ago because that was the way that god provided for the poor and for the hungry to to get some food they could go into the corners of the field pluck the heads of grain begin to eat the grain they could not take a sickle and actually begin to harvest the grain and, and the wheat or whatever it might be. Also provision was made for vineyards and for orchards as well. But you see what the Pharisees are all upset about is that their uh, Jesus disciples that w was uh, were they were doing it on the Sabbath day. And so understand that 2,000 years ago at this time in the history of Israel the Sabbath had a thousand and one restrictions built into it by the Pharisees. And so this confrontation that they have with Jesus is really headed on a collision course that would center around the most important of the laws to the Pharisees, the most important of their traditions, and that was concerning the fulfilling of the Sabbath day. You see, the Sabbath was given to the children of Israel there at Mount Sinai as Moses received the law. And you know that it was Moses that was told that six days that the children of Israel shall work, and then on the seventh day it shall be holy, and they shall rest. So the Sabbath was given initially and originally to the nation of Israel, as we know from Exodus chapter 31, that God said, this is a perpetual covenant that I've made between me and the children of Israel. And it was to be a day, the Sabbath day, a day of rest, a day of reflection on the Lord. It was to be a day where they revered the Lord, a day of reverence. And so properly observed, it would bring that refreshment and relaxation and, and properly observed. It really was supposed to be a day of joy. But the Pharisees, as we would go ahead 1500 years to the days of Jesus what they did is they came along and they made the Sabbath day so hard and so rigid and so burdensome with all their thousands of interpretations of what it meant to cease work what it meant to violate the Sabbath day and and all of this and it was so so complicated that first of all the people couldn't even you know remember all of the little details like it was unlawful to tie a knot 
on the Sabbath day. It was unlawful to spit on the ground on the lawful day on the Sabbath day because what would they would consider is that you know your saliva mixes in with the dirt and that be could be making mortar and you know that could be considered as working and and they had all kinds of just ridiculous silly rules concerning the keeping of the Sabbath. They took it very, very serious. And so here are the disciples. They're plucking the heads of grain from the fields. And what they would do is they would put the heads of, of grain in their hands and they would rub it and the chaff would separate from the grain and they would just kind of blow away the chaff and then they would eat the grain as they went about picking the grain. And so um, the Pharisees saw it as a violation of the Sabbath. Hey, you're rubbing your hands together, and that's the same as threshing, and threshing is work, and you can't do that. Unlawful, out of order. The Sabbath was so important to those religious leaders that they believed that the Messiah wouldn't come until the Sabbath was perfectly kept. They didn't know that Messiah was among them. And so that's why over the years they had come up with so many rules and regulations for the Sabbath. And, and if you violated the Sabbath to where the Pharisees considered it to be a serious violation, you could be excommunicated, kicked out of the synagogue. Now, that was a very frightful thought for the people. Because it, it, if they were excommunicated, remember, it wasn't like they could just go down the street to another church. If they were excommunicated from the synagogue, you were an outcast in society. You were one that you couldn't do business with your brethren. You had no relationship with other Jews. They would shun you. You were ostracized. Your family usually uh, would, would not want anything to do with you. And so that's why it was a very frightful thing. So the Sabbath in Jesus' day became a day of legalities and laws and focus on the rules rather than a day of refreshment and rest and focus on the Lord. So here they are protesting. You, your disciples are breaking the law. They're threshing wheat, and that's unlawful to do that on the Sabbath day. So Jesus answered them, verse 25. But he said to them, Have you never read what David did when he was in need and hungry, and he and those with him, how he went into the house of God in the days of Abiathar the high priest, and ate the showbread, which is not lawful to eat except for the priests, and also gave some to those who were with them. So a couple things to note here I think that, that's worth um, observing and making mention of. In Jesus' response to the Pharisees concerning the Sabbath, Jesus said, have you not read? And we're going to see that Jesus will say that oftentimes to the religious leaders when they were trying to trap him or trick him or trying to, to trip him up somehow or had some kind of protest against him. Jesus would say that, have you not read? And he refers in this instance in, in the text that we're reading back to 1 Samuel chapter 21, which we just will cover very soon in our midweek study in 1 Samuel. And in 1 Samuel chapter 21, we know that it's the story of David. And David, of course, is a man that the Pharisees esteemed very highly. They looked up to David because he was a man in their history that was very important to them. He was the greatest king that Israel ever had. And here is Jesus answering them as they're protesting uh, about the disciples picking grains of, you know, heads of grain there in the field. He said, you know, have you guys not read how David, when he was hungry, how he was running from Saul, when Saul 
sought David's life and how he came to Ahimelech, who was the priest. Now, it is Jesus that makes mention that at that time, Abiathar was the high priest. But David comes and he talks to Ahimelech there in 1 Samuel chapter 21. He asked for the bread and Ahimelech gave him the holy bread. And I like what Jesus is doing here because, first of all, he's opening up the scriptures to them. He doesn't argue with them philosophically, uh, and he doesn't give his opinions, but what he does is he gives them the word of God. And I think that's a very important lesson and consideration for you and for me, and especially in the days in which we are living in. Because there are people that will come to you and to me as Christians, and they will protest, or they'll challenge us, or they'll say, what about this thing? And I think that we need to learn to just simply give them the Word of God. Let God speak for Himself. But oftentimes, if we're not careful and, and we're not wise, what we can do is we give them our opinions or we would like to argue with them endlessly or we give them our philosophy, whatever it might be. And Jesus didn't do that. He didn't talk to them about their traditions or what their rabbis had said or what their philosophies were. He just says, have you not read? And he gets right into the word of God. Did you not read how David how he was hungry and he ate of the holy bread. Only the priests were allowed to eat of that bread according to the Levitical law. But David, he was hungry and his men were hungry. And just like my guys are hungry as well, there was a need. So Jesus is getting to the real issue here. The real matter is not your religious traditions, but rather there was a real need for David. And there was compassion that was shown. If a person is hungry or needy or hurting, don't let your tradition get in the way of helping or feeding or blessing. The human need transcended the law. Moral obligations superseded ceremonial regulations, and they ate of the showbread, those 12 loaves of bread, in the holy place in the tabernacle, those 12 loaves of bread that represented the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, in the next chapter, as this confrontation is going to escalate, again concerning the Sabbath, Jesus is going to give the law. He's going to turn to those Pharisees and he says, isn't it lawful to do good to save life on the Sabbath day? Provision was made. And if David and his men had not eaten of the holy bread, they would have died. They, they were that hungry. So remember that Jesus, he, he's pointing out scripture to them and saying, have you not read? And, and, and can you imagine when Jesus said that to the religious leaders? Have you guys not read? I imagine that their faces got red. And their blood pressure went up. And they're kind of thinking, what do you mean have we not read? Don't you know who you're talking to? We're the Pharisees. And they're getting really upset. And I don't think that Jesus is, is saying this to kind of get a dig in, like sometimes we like to do, or just to get them upset. I think he's trying to bring a very important point to those Pharisees who knew the Scriptures. They read the Scriptures over and over again. They were you know, they were ones that had knowledge. They read 1 Samuel chapter 21. But I think that Jesus is bringing a very important point and making a point. As he knew that they had read the story of David and his men eating the showbread, but his point to them was this, that they, even though they thought they knew every dot and tittle of the Old Testament, every dot and tittle of the Scriptures, the problem was they didn't know the heart of God. And I think that that's a very important lesson for you and for me. Because, you see, if we are not careful, we can be guilty if we study the Scriptures over and over again. And that's good. You know 
if you've been here long enough, that I encourage you, you should be reading the scripture, studying God's word, being grounded in the truth of God's word. But what can happen is, if you're not careful, is you get all your theology in line and, and all your doctrine in line, and doctrine and theology is important, but you can miss the essence of the meaning if you're not careful. And that is opening up your heart to know his heart. And it takes a tender heart to really let the Lord speak to you and to teach you by his spirit. To really know what the heart of God and what the essence of the meaning is. In Ezra chapter 9, the prophet writes that he prepared his heart to seek the Lord in his law. The prophet prepared his heart and then he taught it. And you Pharisees, you may know the scriptures, but you don't have a heart of tenderness and compassion. You're only concerned about your rules and regulations. So when Jesus addresses them, they, they're not responding, and he goes on to say to them, verse 27, that the Sabbath was made for man and not man for the Sabbath. Therefore, the Son of Man is also Lord of the Sabbath. So the Sabbath, that is, taking a day to relax and reflect throughout that day, a day of reverence to God, certainly it was, was made to help man, not to be a hindrance to man. Will you remember that as you go through the Scriptures and you read the commandments of the Lord, as you read the truth of God's word, as you see the, the principles that are there for you and for me. What God has given to us is not meant to be burdens and heavy bummers, but they are to be a blessing and to be beneficial. The Sabbath was made for man. Man was not made for the Sabbath. It is beneficial for man when he takes a day and stops his work and slows it down and becomes refreshed and relaxed and is focused on the Lord on that day. That was for his benefit, not just to focus on some arbitrary rule that you guys have all made up. And all of God's law and his commandments are for man's benefits. The principles of the Lord are for the protection of man, for the good of man. When we read the scriptures in that light, then we are going to be truly blessed. Not just as legalistic burdens. God doesn't want me to have any fun, and God's just a killjoy, and life is going to be boring as a Christian because I've got to keep all these rules and regulations. You're missing the point. Always keep in mind, he gives us these beautiful truths and commands and principles to free me, to free you, that we can experience that life abundantly so that we can be blessed and we can be safe and, and benefited and we're not confused and we're not given over to deception. Not to be a burden, but to help me experience life the way it was meant to be, the way that God wants us to live, that we have real joy that it brings and peace and strength and wisdom in our lives. An important verse that you might want to jot down for you note-takers is in 1 John chapter 5, verse 3, where John the Apostle of Love says, For this is the love of God, that we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. In other words, every single one of the commandments of God that is given to you and to me is an expression of his love to you, to me as well. Do you know that? It's an expression of his love. So the Lord is saying, I love you so much, I'm going to give you my commandments and how you should walk with me and in my ways and, and how to live for me because I love you and I want you to do well. I want you to be free. It's sin that's going to hold you in bondage. It's sin that's going to deceive you. It's terrible consequences that will happen because of sin or if you're given over to the world and living for the world, pursuing the pleasures of the world. So here are the commandments that I've given to you because it's an expression of my love to you. 
So oftentimes, people won't read the whole of Scripture. They, they think, oh, I don't need to read the Old Testament. It really isn't relevant. It doesn't apply to me, especially when you get to those parts of the Old Testament like the books of Moses, you know, Leviticus and Numbers and Deuteronomy. Now, as a fellowship, we've been through those books chapter by chapter. And it is a tremendous blessing to look at it because all of those things were given to us to where they were a benefit to us and a blessing for us. Now, we know that we're not under the law. We're not under the law. But we can look at those things and we can make application. We can see the principle that's there. For example, in the book of Leviticus, we know that in the New Testament that we as Christians, that all foods have been declared clean and you're to receive it with thanksgiving. First Timothy chapter 4, verse 4. You go into Romans chapter 14, it talks about that and liberty and all those things. But when you go through Leviticus and it talks about that which is clean and that which is unclean and the dietary laws, we can make principles. We can, we can see that as we look at it, we can make application that I need to be careful in my life today what it is that I take in. Not just physically, but what I take in in my mind. Through the television, through videos, through the computer, the things that I read, the things that I'm listening to. You see what I mean? And that's a very important principle that the Lord is showing me. When it comes to the Sabbath, the Sabbath law is not given to the Christians. We know that it's in Colossians chapter 2 that it was Paul that said, let no one judge you in food or in drink or regarding a festival or new moon or Sabbath, which are a shadow of the things to come, but the substance is Christ. In other words, that our Sabbath rest is in Jesus Christ. He's the reality, but it's a good principle, isn't it? For us to take a day and, and to obey and worship and, and just that day of just reflecting on the Lord and focusing on the Lord. Paul would say in Romans chapter 14 that one man esteems one day above another, one man esteems every day alike. You could be convinced in your own mind. So the principles that as we go through can be very freeing. And Jesus was saying to those religious leaders, you Pharisees, you don't know, you don't know, and you should know that the Sabbath was made to bless you, to be beneficial to you. Therefore, the Son of Man is also the Lord of the Sabbath. And so as we move into chapter 3, now this confrontation is going to escalate and move into the synagogue in Capernaum. And we see that Jesus, as he entered into that synagogue again, there was a man there who had a withered hand. So they watched him closely, whether he would heal him on the Sabbath, so they, they might accuse him. So this dispute going into the synagogue on the Sabbath day, continuing concerning the Sabbath, and it's going to take place in a synagogue in Capernaum. The hostility that the Pharisees have with Jesus is going to be reaching a climax now where we have seen the progression of this hostility that they've had with Jesus. First they ask, why does he eat with tax collectors and sinners as we saw in chapter 2? The second dispute was a little bit more serious, wasn't it? As we saw last week, why does you know, your disciples not fast like we fast? And so we saw that it was Jesus that, that answered them about that. The bridegroom is with you. And then it got more serious because it deals with the Sabbath. Why does your disciples do what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And now as we go into chapter 3, it says that they're watching him, that they might accuse him. So here is this man with his withered hand that's going to be planted there in a the synagogue in Capernaum. 
And he's there, the religious leaders are there, and then Jesus, he comes into the synagogue, as was customary that he would do on a Sabbath day. Those religious leaders knew that Jesus was going to be there. And so we see that Jesus, as he goes into that place, in verse 3, and he said to the man who had the withered hand, step forward. And then he said to them, is it lawful on the Sabbath to do good or to do evil, to save life or to kill? But they kept silent. And when he had looked around at them with anger, being grieved by the hardness of their hearts, he said to the man, stretch out your hand. And he stretched it out, and his hand was restored as whole as the other. And then the Pharisees went out and immediately plotted with the Herodians against him how they might destroy him. So again, on this Sabbath day, if it was the same one or later on uh, another Sabbath day, Jesus there in the synagogue worshiping. And, and so the religious leaders, as I mentioned to you, knew that he was going to be in that synagogue. By the way, do people know where you're going to be? When it comes to Sunday, and I know that not every week perhaps we'll be in service or maybe we have to work or health hinders us. But do they know that you're going to be one? That you're going to be seeking the Lord regularly, whatever day that might be? That you're going to be in a place where you're going to be hearing from the Lord? And they knew that Jesus was going to be in that synagogue. That was a priority for him. And so what they do is they come up with this plan. We're going to try to trap him. We're going to have something to accuse him. Now, the synagogue here in Capernaum probably held about 150 people or so. And we have a picture of the synagogue out there in the coffee shop that is in Capernaum. And that synagogue that you see in that picture is actually a synagogue that was built over the ruins of this synagogue that was standing at the time of Jesus. So there is Jesus there coming into the synagogue. There is the religious leaders trying to, to trap, you know, Jesus accuse him with and then there's a man with a withered hand and some believe scholars that the Pharisees planted this man there in a synagogue to trap Jesus and that very well could be they tell him go sit in the back and they knew the religious leaders the Pharisees that when Jesus went into that synagogue on that day and saw that man with a withered hand sitting in the back that he was going to be drawn to him that he might try to bring healing to him that he might try to help and minister to him because he's been doing all kinds of healings all over the Galilee region. And the Pharisees, they didn't care about that man. They had contempt for him. They didn't care about the people. They were only using that man for his purposes. We don't know how that man got his withered hand, whether he was born that way or whether it was withered through some kind of accident or whatever may have taken place. But we do know that, that if this man, uh, it would be very difficult for him to, to make a living. We don't know if he had a family, a wife. It would be very difficult for him. Remember that in Jesus' day, they didn't have workman's comp or disability. He could no longer work in a way that, that he could provide for his family if he was doing that previously. You see, the man with the withered hand perhaps speaks something to you and to me this morning. Because maybe there are areas in your life that you know are not functioning as they should. Functioning as you wish they would. Maybe spiritually, maybe emotionally. Maybe perhaps in a relationship or a manner of the family. Some area is not working right. It's paralyzed and we're aware of that. Something's not right. It's no longer functioning. It feels like it's hindered, it's limited, it's, it's withered. 
or the situation is making it wither even more. And this man certainly, he felt that way as he has this withered hand. So you have the man with the withered hand, you have the religious leaders trying to trap him, and you see one of the other rules that they had concerning the Sabbath was there was to be no miracles on the Sabbath day. That's considered work. And they knew, again, that when Jesus went into the synagogue, and if he tried to do anything good to that man with the withered hand, that they would trap him, have something to accuse him with. And those religious leaders came into that synagogue not to worship, not to commune with God, not to hear from God, not to fellowship and and to really minister to their people. They came into that synagogue to watch. They came into that synagogue to critique and to judge and to criticize and to put the people down. My prayer for us here at Calvary Chapel, for all of us, that when we come into this place and when we come with other believers, whether it's here or somewhere else, that we would come with the purpose of desiring to worship Him and to learn of Him and to draw close to God and to encourage and lift each other up as we just minister to one another, that we come together desiring to do what is pleasing and right and honorable before the Lord, that we don't just come in and say, well, (laughs) I'm going to watch and them and how they do this and critiquing and all of this and then on the way home just blasting all the little, you know, things that weren't quite right or whatever it might be, that we come in with a right heart, that, Lord, I am coming to worship. Lord, I am coming to learn of you. Lord, to be with your people, how great it is for us to have this place here to meet and to gather and to learn of him and worship him and be brothers and sisters in the Lord. And the Pharisees, it was all about them. And they looked down upon the people and they were always critiquing and being burdensome to the people and coming down on them. And so they want to try to find fault with Jesus. They want to try to accuse him. And so you have the religious leaders. You have Jesus as he enters into the synagogue. And sure enough, what does he do here? He immediately gravitates towards that man with the withered hand. You know, one of the other things that the Pharisees taught, that if you had some kind of physical infirmity, that it was probably because you were a sinner, that you were being judged by God. So this man really was, was ostracized in the congregation. And he's sitting back there in the back. And he's back there, the Pharisees are up front, and our Lord comes in, and right away he notices that man. And that encourages me, and I hope it does you as well. Because Jesus comes into this place on this day, and you know who he's drawn to? He gravitates towards the person who's aware of their paralysis, who feels withered, for some reason perhaps is hurting. That's who he's drawn to. And if that's you this morning, he's drawn to you. And realize that, you know, one of the things that Satan will try to do is he'll try to get us to believe that if we are not doing good, man, don't go to church. Don't be in fellowship with other believers. Don't go to prayer meetings. Don't be reading your Bible. You've got to get it together first, and you've got to be doing good, and you've got to feel strong, and then you can come and you can worship, and then you can read your Bible, and then you can turn to the Lord, and that's not true. The Lord gravitates towards the one who has the greatest need and the person who feels the worst, and he's here in this place this morning, and he looks right into your heart, And he sees what's in your heart. 
And he can see if there's paralysis. He can see if something is withered in some area of your life. He can see if you're hurting. And realize that as we gather in this place, in the name of Jesus Christ, that the Lord gravitates towards those who are hurting, who are paralyzed, and and something withered in their life. Maybe perhaps others have been ignoring you. Maybe there are those who have been really coming down on you. But Jesus comes into this place to minister to you, whatever that might mean for you. And notice that Jesus gravitates towards that man. He now says something very interesting. Now, put yourself in that man's sandals, if you would. That man's sitting in the back. The Pharisees probably planted him there. All of a sudden, he finds himself in the middle of this confrontation, and Jesus comes in. He's not knowing what Jesus is going to do, and Jesus looks at that man sitting in the back and said, You, stand up. Imagine what he's thinking. Me? I didn't want to get involved in this. Why are you pointing me out? Why are you telling me to stand up? But he tells him, he says, You, stand in the midst as one of the other gospel narratives says. Step forward is what he's saying. Stand up. And I imagine that man's getting a little bit nervous because you've got to understand, he doesn't understand where Jesus is going with this. He doesn't know the story as we do, as we just read. So he stands up. And then he turns to the Pharisees and he begins to address them. He says, you know, listen, you're concerned about the Sabbath. First of all, Jesus is angry in his heart. It's a righteous anger that he has because of the hardness of their hearts. They didn't care about the people. They only cared about themselves and the rules and the traditions. They didn't care about saving life, helping people, having people draw close to God, any of those things. You, you're concerned about the Sabbath, aren't you? Let me ask you, whose thoughts are nearer to the purpose of the Sabbath, yours or mine's? I want to do good to this man. And what you want to do is you want to harm me. I want to bring healing to this man, and you're thinking of killing me. Now, which is in line with the Sabbath? And Mark says that they were silent. And then Jesus says something to this man that must have just absolutely floored him. After he says, stand in the midst, stand up, he says, now stretch forth that hand. And I just wonder what it is that he is thinking. If he was thinking, what do you mean stretch forth my hand? Don't you know that, that my hand is withered? I, I can't do it. I can't physically stretch forth that hand. It is withered and it doesn't work. And, and perhaps that he's thinking, I've tried it so many times before, it doesn't work. I got a withered hand. But when he heard the command of the Lord being said to him, stretch forth that hand, and as he did it as he was obedient to the command of the Lord to stretch it forth. All of a sudden, it began to stretch forth and it became healed and it was whole like the other one. An amazing miracle. Now, there's a very important principle that is here for you and I to understand. We've talked about the command of God given to us is for our benefit, for our good. It's so that we can experience life the abundant life that he has for us, that it's an expression of his love. But there's another principle concerning his commandments. When you hear the commandment of the Lord given to you in whatever area that might be, and whatever command is given to you, and the Lord's speaking to you, when he gives a commandment, he's going to enable you and empower you to do it. And that's the wonderful thing about being a Christian. 
is that when he speaks to you through the word and you read a truth, a command, when you read a, a, a principle that's there, when you receive instructions from the Lord, he's not going to tell you to do anything that he isn't going to enable you to do by the Holy Spirit. And he told this man, stretch forth your hand. And he gave that man the ability and the healing power that he gave to that man. And he gives commandments to you and to me. And he will give us the strength and the power to do it, whatever that might be. This man could have very easily has just stood there and said, I can't. I'm just going to stand here and I'm not going to stretch it forth. But he did. And as he did, the Lord enabled him to do it. There might be somebody that's here this morning or out in a coffee shop and you haven't really truly surrendered your life to Jesus Christ. And the commandment of the Lord given to you is repent and turn to Jesus and surrender your life to him and to, to call out to him because he's the one that has saved you. He's the only hope that any of us have is what Jesus Christ has done for you on Calvary's cross in providing forgiveness of sin. He was put into a grave. He rose from the grave by the power of God, and he's alive. And you can't save yourself. It was Jesus that was talking to the disciples at another time. Well, this rich young ruler came to Jesus, and they had this discussion, and Jesus turned to his disciples, and he said, it's hard for a rich man to enter into the kingdom of God. It's like a camel trying to go through an eye of a needle. And the disciples heard that. They said, then who can be saved? They were astonished at that. And Jesus said, with man is impossible. With God, all things are possible. And if you have never surrendered your life to Jesus Christ, if there's anyone that is here, hear his command, hear his plea to you to repent and turn to him and surrender your heart to him. And he will save you. And there will be forgiveness of sin. And you'll come in the right relationship with the Father, understanding that I am a sinner. And Jesus' words I hear, not making excuses not ignoring, not thinking I can save myself because you cannot save yourself. I can go by other means. No one else can save you. No other deity, no other religious system. It's only Jesus. The true Son of God who came and died for you and made provision as he hung on Calvary's cross for your sins. And he says, come. Surrender your heart to me. Receive me as Lord and Savior, and he will save you. And as you dare to just surrender your heart and open your heart to him, he will do that impossible work in your life. The Lord, for many of us who are Christians, to all of us, who have come to the saving knowledge of Jesus Christ, at times he will give us a command that, that it seems like it's impossible to do as he addresses that area of our lives, that there's paralysis that keeps us from having real spiritual victory, that, that attitude, that temper, that unforgiveness, that bitterness, maybe that fear, maybe the weakness in the flesh, those things that are areas in our lives. And Jesus desires to address you and to give you the commandments to turn to him, surrender, to repent, to bring correction, to trust him, to give you the strength and the wisdom that you need, the comfort that you need, whatever it might be. Hey, forgive. I, I can't do that, you might think. The Lord says, do it. This man, again, didn't make excuses. He didn't argue with Jesus. He didn't rehearse his past failures. 
And I think that Jesus knows that we can't do it in and of ourselves. And that's why he says, come and listen to my voice and obey the voice and the command that I give to you. And then he will give you everything necessary to do what he's called you to do. He'll give you the power to obey that command. So guys, he tells us, love your wives as Christ loves the church. And the wonderful thing about it is he'll enable you to do it as you surrender to him. He says to forgive, to not have bitterness, to not let that anger just spread to where it comes to wrath and malice. Put those things off and he'll give us the ability to do those things. Even though it's impossible in our own selves to do it, the Holy Spirit working in you and through you will enable you to do it. Maybe you're in bondage to some kind of sin in your life, of the flesh, whatever it might be. You're in bondage to something and the Lord says, I have asked you, I want you, I love you to surrender to me and come to me and give up that thing that has you in bondage. And he'll enable you to do that because all of godliness is given to us by Christ Jesus. And then we can say, Lord, I hear your voice and I believe that you will give me the power and the capacity to do what you've commanded me to do. So can I ask you a question this morning? What is it, where is it that there's paralysis? And we can say, Lord, I hear your voice. I know what your word says to me, and I believe that you come to the person who has the greatest need, maybe hurting the worst, and I think I might qualify for that this morning. And Lord, because of your love for me, I'm going to stand in the midst, and I'm going to stretch forth my hand. And that's what this man did. And God worked powerfully. So the Pharisees offended that he healed on the Sabbath. They went out to plot to kill Jesus. Now that's what we're going to see. The Herodians, the scribes, the Pharisees coming together to plot to have Jesus put to death in verse 7. And so Jesus withdrew with his disciples to the sea with a great multitude from Galilee, followed him and from Judea and Jerusalem and Idomea and beyond the Jordan and those from Tyre and Sidon, a great multitude when they heard how many things he was doing, came to him. So they're coming from all the area of Galilee, which is in the north part of Israel, all from Judea, which is in the southern part of the country, from Jerusalem, which is the capital of Judea, all the way from Idumea and Edom, which is on the east side of the Jordan River, down in the Arabia Desert. And they're coming from all the way up north in Lebanon, and Tyre and Sidon. And, and they're coming from all around, flocking to hear and see this amazing man who's in Galilee doing amazing miracles and saying wonderful things. And the crowds are so huge that, verse 9, he told his disciples that a small boat should be ready for him because of the multitude, lest they should crush him. And so people trying to get at Jesus and touch him. And he says, you guys get a boat ready for me so I can have a little space if I need it. In verse 10, for he healed many so that as many as had afflictions pressed about to touch him and the unclean spirits, whenever they saw him, fell down before him and cried out saying, you are the son of God. But he sternly warned them that they should not make him known. So the demons are crying out. When Jesus would come, they cried out, you're the son of God. And Jesus would say, hey, don't make that known. Now why? He didn't want the demons doing his PR work. Because not only are demons called unclean spirits, but they are also called lying spirits as well. And if demons are called lying spirits, Jesus doesn't want them speaking certainly about him. 
He doesn't want them, you know, speaking about Jesus and, and these demons. He doesn't want them speaking because they work for the one who's called the father of lies. When Paul was writing to Timothy in 1 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1, he said, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith, giving heed to deceiving spirits and doctrines of demons. John the Apostle loved, so we made reference to his first epistle, in chapter 4, verse 1, Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits, whether they are of God, because many false prophets have gone out into the world. In a recent Daniel study that we just finished at the end of the year, last month, it talks about the one who's going to come on the scene right prior to the second coming of Jesus Christ. To the world, he's going to be speaking great things. The world's going to look at him and see that he's going to bring the world together religiously. He's going to be working signs and wonders. And they're going to be deceived and many are going to follow after him. Because they did not test the spirits. They were given in to the father of lies. They don't understand that the things that he speaks, even though the world's going to say he's a great orator, speaks great things, that they're blasphemies against the true and the living God. That the religious system that he will set up and support will be a false church. And those signs and wonders are going to bring great deception. So for you and for me in the days in which we are living in, which I believe we are in the last days, how it is that we test the spirits to see if they are of God? We test it through the Word of God. We filter it through the Scriptures. And a good principle is this. When you see a doctrine comes blowing through the church that so many people can get caught up in, is when you're establishing a doctrine, any doctrine, is you say, where do I see this in the Word of God? That's how I can ultimately test it. And you can say, do I see it exemplified in the life of Christ? Is it practiced in the book of Acts? Is it taught in the epistles? And if you don't see it in the life of Christ, if you don't ex see it expressed in the book of Acts, if it isn't explained in the epistles, then you better be careful. If it does not line up with any of the whole of Scripture, and that's how you and I can test the spirits. And we can be established in truth, and we are able to give truth. And the doctrines of demons... They can be silenced. And so, Father, as we stop here at this point in our study, I just thank you for this time that we've had in your word. 